Amen. Good morning, everyone. We are beginning a study in the book of Acts this morning, so if you want to open there, if you want to bookmark it, that is where we will be for this semester. Uh, We'll cover the first 12 chapters between now and when the students leave in May, then we'll take a break, and then we will uh, reset for Act 2 of Acts in September, where we'll do uh, chapters 13 through 28. So if you want to get your uh, Bibles or apps open to Acts, that's where we will be this morning, and it's where we'll be for this entire semester. But before we jump in, have you ever wondered what your last words will be? Like, last words are are kind of like an important thing. Like, they punctuate your life in some ways. You can look up, you you can do Google searches for famous last words. You know, like, what's the last thing somebody said? Because sometimes, like, if you have the chance to to put, you know, the period at the end of a sentence of your life. Like, what, what's it going to be? You know, you, you hope it's not something, you know, like, this milk doesn't taste that bad. Like, you hope it's, you hope it's not something like that. <laughs> or like, you know, like, it's called rat poison, not human poison. <laughs> like, that'd be, that'd be a, a lame last thing to say. You're like, oh, I hope that's not the case. <laughs> or you hope it's something like epic, like Nathan Hale. You know, my only regret is that I have but one life to give for my country, or one life to lose for my country. That's an epic last thing to say. That's an epic way to end your life. Or like our, our friend Hugh Latimer, you know, back in the Reformation, who said, you know, Master Ridley, play the man, for today we shall light such a candle in England as I trust by the grace of God shall never be put out. And then went and gave his life. That's an epic last thing to say. Now, what if you, like, so knowing that you're going to say something, at some point you will say some words and they will be the last words you ever speak. But what if you could pick what if you could choose? What do I want my last words to be? And you could write it out, and you could plan it, and those could be your last words, and you could exit stage left. Walk off with choosing your last words. What would those words be? Well, that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to watch as Jesus gives his last words, and Jesus knew they would be his last words. He was not caught off guard. He wasn't trying to make a red light. He knew exactly that he was going to say these and then exit stage north. He knew that was going to be the last thing. So we're going to get to that. But before we do, we're going to dive into uh, Acts chapter 1, and we're going to get some context before we get to those actual last words that Jesus said. What were the last things when Jesus picked his last words? What was the thing that was so important that he chose to say last? We will get to that. Before we do, we're going to get some context um, on the book of Acts and dive in. Let's look at the first three verses of chapter 1. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So first of all, the book of Acts, when we're doing context, we want to know some things like who wrote it, who they write it to, when, why, what's the occasion, what's going on. So the first thing we learn here is that it was written to a person named Theophilus. You know, some of you are pregnant with, if, you have, if you're having a boy, Theophilus, kind of a cool name. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe it's too much. You know, it's certainly not going to be a lot of them at the nursery. But Theophilus means Theo, God, Phyllis, Theophilus, Philia, love for brothers. So it's the love of God. Like you've heard of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, Philia. It's that word. So his name is Theophilus. His name literally means lover of God. So we don't know if that's his real name. We don't know much about him. There's not a lot of historical evidence about him. It might be like a cipher, like a nickname. Um, like a code he's using, or maybe you see a generic name he's writing to all those who love God. But it, it, more likely, it is actually to an individual, but it would also certainly apply to all those who love God. But it's written to this man, Theophilus. 
We know that about him, but who wrote it? Well, it doesn't say here. The author doesn't introduce himself. But he does say that this is the second book he's written, that there's another book, there's a first book, and that this is the continuation of that. And he says that in his first book, he was writing about all that Jesus did and taught. And so we know that we have four books, those are called Gospels, that document those kinds of things, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we know it's one of those four, and then if we do just do a quick word search for Theophilus, we find it appears one other time, and it's in Luke chapter 1. So we know that our author is Luke, who wrote this, and we have it actually here up on the slide for you. Anytime I cite something outside of the text of Acts, I'll put it up on the screen for you so you can keep your finger in Acts. But look at Luke 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So you need to know, Luke and Acts were originally one volume. They were, one, they were meant to be one book, and they separated them out here for our sake in uh, the Gospels and then the book of Acts. But it was originally written as one book, and it was written by this man, Luke, and we see his purpose in doing so was to compile a narrative. So he wanted to take all the facts that were out there, all the things that have been said about Jesus, and put it in one place, and he wanted to let Theophilus know these are things that have been accomplished. These are things that have been done. They happened in real time in history, and he wants you to, not just that they were done, but he wants you to know what they mean. Like, like sometimes you'll do something, and somebody will say, like, well, what did it even accomplish? They're not asking, did you do it? They're saying, what's the point? What was accomplished by having done it? And so Luke wants Theophilus to know not just these things happened, but what's the impact? What does it mean that these things happened? What does it matter that a Jewish man was nailed to a cross for us? What does it mean to you, Theophilus, that this happened on that hill? And so he wants him to know that, and he wants him to know that he's going to pass along what's been delivered to him, that the eyewitnesses who stood at the foot of the crosses, he's, he's interviewed these people. He's met with the people who saw it firsthand, and he wants to relay that information like a reporter. And he wants to put it in an orderly account for this man, Theophilus, so that he can have certainty about what he's been taught. And that would be Luke's hope for us this morning as well, that we have been taught things about Jesus. He wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, with certainty, what happened back on a certain hill, on a certain day, to a certain man, and what that means for you sitting in here in Columbia. He wants you to know what was accomplished there, and what does that accomplish in my life now? What did that accomplish yeah, sure, it happened. What does it mean? So he wants you to know it happened, and he wants you to know what it means. So who's this man, Luke, though? What else do we know about him? We have one other clue from a scripture, Colossians 4.14. I have up on the screen for you. Uh, Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, when he's closing, has this traveling companion named Luke, and he uh, wants to uh, give a shout-out to him. And so he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So Paul has this guy, Luke, who's traveling with him. And Luke wants to give a shout-out to the Colossians, and so he, he writes him in on the liner notes of his album at the end, you know, Paul featuring Luke. And so he writes that in there, and so we find out that he's a beloved physician. Those two words, a beloved physician. He's beloved. It's not that, that he, he was first loved by God, and so he has love to give. He's beloved. He is loved, and so he has love to give, and everybody loves him in return. Luke's a good guy. You want to have him around. He's, he's a beloved physician. He's, he's highly relational. He likes people. He's full of love, and so he has love to give. He has love from God, and so he pours it out. He, it, it empties out from him. And he takes, he's a physician, so he, takes, he uses that love and that relationship to risk his own health to treat people who are sick. 
he accompanies people who are hurting in order to try and help them. That's the kind of person Luke is. And then it says he's a physician, so that means he's highly educated. We live in a town where there's a university. It's a very educated town. It's an intellectual town. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but places where education is highly exalted, Jesus usually isn't. The more intellectual a community tends to be, the more they, they, they tend to feel like they don't really have room for all that spiritual jojo, juju, mojo, juju. I don't know, whatever the word is. They don't have room for it. Because it's, it's, it's not in the kind of books that they like to read. It's not in the kind of books that they place authority in. So Luke is a highly educated man who worships Jesus with all of his heart. And he's a physician. So he's very particular. He likes details. And that's why he wrote an orderly account. He, he works in a profession where a centimeter left or right can mean the difference between nicking the artery and not. Like, precision matters to Luke. He, he works in a profession where a milligram, more or less, could put you into cardiac arrest or cure you. He, he works in a, in a realm of precision. And that's why we see between Luke and Acts, he wrote 52 chapters, 2,157 verses, 38,000 words. He wrote two books in the New Testament, but just by volume, he wrote a third of its content. So just Luke alone, between the book of Luke and the book of Acts, wrote a third of the words that are in your New Testament. Luke cares about details, and he wants to document it because he wants you to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this matters, that it happened, and that it accomplished something for you sitting here right now. It accomplished something for Theophilus. It accomplished something for us. And so when did he write it? He doesn't state for sure. Uh, we, we can guess it's probably sometime in the 60s, you know, not the, not the cool, like, far-out man 60s, but, like, the 60s, like, when that's all there was, like, 6-0, like, what, not 1960, but, like, 6-0, um, because we know that in 70, the temple was destroyed. Luke's a man who likes details. He would have brought that up, so we know that it happened sometime prior to that, so who's the main character of Acts? I just told you that we're going to spend this first chunk in the uh, of the semester on 1 through 12, and then 13 through 28 in the fall. Well, it kind of divides that way because the first 12 are kind of about Peter, and the last ones are kind of about this man named Paul, who was previously named Saul. So which one is the main character? Well, neither. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is the main character of the book of Acts. We just got done studying Genesis. We just finished that up in December. Who is the main character of Genesis? God. The whole series was titled Introducing God, and we're not going to see any change in that pace whatsoever. The book of Acts' main character is God. The Holy Spirit is going to be referenced 55 times in the book of Acts. God, the Holy Spirit, will be on display as the main character. He is the main mover. And we, I have on the screen for you Luke 24. Towards the end of his gospel, he says this. This is Jesus talking. Then he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, after he had risen from the grave. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The main character of the entire Bible is Jesus. Wouldn't you like to have been there to have a, 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 a Jesus study Bible where he opens up your Old Testament and says, that was me. Right there, that was me. That was pretty cool. That was me. 
like just walking you through the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament, he says, is about him. He is the main character. God is the main character of the whole story. The whole Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. And he opens up the Bible and shows the disciples everything that was written about him in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is a shorthand way of saying all the Old Testament. Everything Moses wrote, everything the prophets wrote, everything that's in the Psalms is about me. Everything's pointing forward to me. And so jumping back into Acts now, verses 4 and 5, he kind of recaps what, he, what Jesus said there, but then he adds one little detail as he starts to advance the story now into the book of Acts. Verses 4 and 5. While staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus says there's a transition happening here. Just like when John showed up, 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, nothing, just silence. And then a voice in the wilderness crying out shows up, a man in camel hair and eating locusts, a prophet, a man in the desert proclaiming that something's about to happen. God isn't gone away. He's been silent, but something's about to happen. And John shows up with a baptism. And John baptized people in water. And just like he immersed people entirely in the Jordan River underwater, this new transition is going to be people are going to be totally immersed in God. Not just in water, but in God himself. That's what's going to happen. And just like John's baptism pointed ahead to Jesus, this new baptism is going to point everyone back to what Jesus did. Whatever this new baptism is, it's going to point everyone back. And just like his marked a transition, this next baptism is going to mark a major transition in the way things happen. There was a way things happened, and then John showed up and changed everything. And now something else is about to happen, and it's going to change everything. And so we see Jesus' final words coming up here in verses 6 through 8. What did Jesus say? What was so important to him to punctuate his life, to leave that lasting ringing echo in his disciples' ears? What was the last thing he wanted them to hear? Verse 6, so when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So before he can get in his last words, the disciples budge in with a question. They're basically like, is it over? Are we done? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> like nagging him from the back seat. Hey, Jesus, you're driving this thing. Where are we there yet? He's like, No. <laughs> You would know. <laughs> you would know. Like, you're not going to miss the end. You would know. We're not there yet. We're just getting started, guys. We're just getting started. No, we're not there yet. We're just getting started. And that may cause frustration or exhaustion. And you're like, and some of you maybe even came in here this morning. Can I just be done? Can we, can we be close to the end? Jesus, can you just come back? Can we just, can, can, can we just be done with this? I'm so tired. There's so much to do. But listen, here's kind of the big idea this morning. I have it up on a slide for you. Salvation is not the finish line. It is the starter's pistol. Salvation is not the end. God did not put you on this earth to get yourself saved and then punch out and just kind of ride it out and wait for him to come back or the world to end or whatever. Salvation is not the finish line. It's the starter's pistol. Salvation is what gets you in the game. Before you were saved, you weren't even on the track. The race is what you do after you're saved. Like, for those who are running the race, like Hebrews 12, like, you're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses cheering you on because you're on the track now. You're in the game. You have faith in Jesus. Like, it's a starter's pistol. It's like, let's go. We're saved. Let's do this. It's not run, run, run. Oh, I'm saved. Ooh, that was rough. Ooh, I'm so tired. I'm so glad I'm saved. 
bubble bath time for me. Come Jesus, you know, like I'm going to sit here with Oreos and cheesecake. Let's do this. <laughs> Salvation is a starter's pistol. It's what gets you into the race. Before you were saved, you weren't even on the track. But, but he welcomes you onto the track by his grace through faith in Jesus. And now it's like, you're in a race now. Let's run. And let's run like we're trying to win something. Let's run around. Let's actually put our effort into this. Let's run like we have a baton and there's people waiting for us to pass it to them. And they can't go until we get it to them. Let's run. Like, remember when you were a kid? My kids run everywhere. Why? <laughs> Why do they run? They don't have to. Nobody tells them to. I've never had to command my kids to run anywhere. They just do it because it's fun. And we forgot that. We got old. We got tired. We had things to do. We don't have time to run. But why, what do you mean we don't have time to run? We'd get places faster if we did. <laughs> like even this morning, I was cold, so I was running from my van to the building. And I remember even having the thought, like, how undignified I must look right now. Like, <laughs> you're a grown man. <laughs> Either set your watch so you can get places on time or don't come. Like, we don't want to watch a grown man run around a parking lot. <laughs> it looks foolish. But we were, like, running is fun, and kids do it just out of the joy of their heart. And God wants to welcome you into a race. And just run. Not because he's like a taskmaster saying, like, run faster, run faster. And like with a stopwatch, like every lap, you're like, you're not making time. And he's like, no, like, run. Isn't it fun? Just go get after it. Like the way that you do when you're a kid and you're in an open field and you just want to have fun. And so you run because you want to. Not because you have to, but because it's the most natural thing in the world to do. Look at all this field in front of me. Why wouldn't I run? God's saying, I saved you. Get on the track. Just run. Isn't it fun to be on the track, to be in the game, to have the cloud of witnesses cheering you on? Go, Merm. You got this. Go. Like, isn't it fun? Just run. You have a cloud of witnesses surrounding you, encouraging you to run. So run the race that God has put you in by his grace through saving us. But don't just do it on your own power. Don't just dig deep. I think that's our thing, right? Like, oh, if I'm going to race, then I'm going to have to dig deep. You're going to have to, you know, you're gonna have to look inside. It's the last thing you want to do because uh, you, you, you will run out of power. You will power down and you will fall flat on the track and you'll be like, I can't go on. It's like, you're right, you can't, but God can. And the one who called you to the race is the one who's empowering you to keep running. He's not just saying run. He's the one who's giving you the fuel to run. And we see that. Look at the first part of verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's good news. You'll receive power. You hear this word thrown around like God is omnipotent. And we like that word and we think it's special. We don't even necessarily know what it means. <laughs> like that's a good thing though. I wish I was that, I guess, right? Omnipotent, all, omnipotent, power. He has all power. He has all of it. And he can give it to you and not run out. The thing about, that's great about God is if he gives you power, he doesn't like, it doesn't take power from him to give it to you. He has all of it. And he can make more. He knows where it's found. He knows where all the power is. He has it. And he can give it to you. Enough for you. He has enough to give you all that you need and not run out. He has enough to give power to everybody who asks for it and not run out. It doesn't deplete his resources to give you what you need. So ask. Receive. Like, it's received. You take it into yourself. You don't look inside for power. You look out and say, help. And you receive power. Some of your phones are dying right now. And some of you know it, and some of you are now concerned. <laughs> like, my phone's dying? Oh, it probably is. I forgot to plug it in last night. Ugh. Or the last thing you saw was that 6% and that red flash in the corner. You're like, oh, no. How much, or some of you are seeing it right now because you're on Facebook instead of listening to me, and that's fine. <laughs> it's not actually fine, but 
<laughs> but you, you're, the illustration is hitting home maybe for you right now. You're like, how am I supposed to update my Facebook status? I'm going to run out of power. And your phone, your phone has even like alerted you and said, I'm going into low battery mode. I'm not doing anything extra <laughs> for the next 10 minutes because I, I got nothing left. So I'm going into low power mode. That's all I got for you. Sorry, bud. You know, I'm not going to auto update for you anymore. I'm too tired. And so some of you are like, some of you are like right now thinking, there's outlets here, right? <laughs> did I bring my power cord? I feel like I did. Did I bring my purse? Do I know somebody who has a purse? Do I have a purse? <laughs> because when you're feeling, when your phone's dying, you need power. It will die. Unless you recharge it, it's going to die. Your phones are dying. <laughs> How morbid. Unless you have a power cord and a source where you know you can find it. And so when your phone's dying, you immediately your brain seeks out, where are the outlets in this place? Do I have a power cord? You know what to do when your phone is dying. Some of you came here this morning feeling like that phone. You are tired. If you could put a percentage over your life, you'd say 5%. Running on fumes. I've been on low battery power for a while now. I don't got anything, room for anything extra whatsoever, just the minimum stuff to get by. And you came here this morning looking for an outlet. Is there power anywhere? And you got anything for me? I am worn out. Good news. God is a source of all power. And he's not just omnipotent. He's generous. He didn't just have all the power, which would be good news, because at least there exists a category of a thing called an outlet. But he's generous. He wants to give it to you. He's not withholding. He's eager to give it to you, but it has to be received. Are you weak this morning? Then be weak. Don't put on a strong face for us. Be weak. If you're weak, be weak and ask for power. It's available. The first thing required to receive power is to admit you're weak, is to admit that you're on low power and you need help, that you can't do this on your own. And the next thing you have to do is actually connect to it. Some of you, you know where the outlets are. There's one right there. Some of you need to know. After church, there's one over there. There's one over there anytime. But you need a way to connect to it. Just throwing your phone at the outlet is not going to charge it up. Some of you just showing up for church this morning is not going to power you up. Just because you got within the proximity of where an outlet is does not charge your phone. You have to connect to the power source. You can't just be around it. Oh, I hang out with outlets. It's fine. (laughs) No, you need to connect to it. And the way that we connect to it is by faith through Jesus Christ alone. There's one connector to that power. And it is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and belief, receiving that through the power of the Holy Spirit who empowers that whole process. We have the Father who is the source of power, the connection to the Son, and the Holy Spirit which actually energizes that thing and makes the transaction take place. Are you connected to it? Not just are you here. Not just do you know that outlets are a good thing. Not just do you know that you're weak. Are you connected to it? Have you received power from him? Are you looking for it? It's available. He has it all, and he's generous. He wants to give it. But you need to be connected. But power to do what? Just to recharge so that you can go back out and do your own thing again? My phone's dying, but I need energy so I can go back on Facebook and drain it out again? No, salvation is not the finish line. It's a starter's pistol. He's not just looking to recharge you so you can go back to doing your own thing. He's not just looking to fill you up with energy so you can go spend it on things that got you into the problem in the first place. He wants to give you power for what? Look at verse 8 as he continues. Power, you will be my witnesses. Power to witness to what God has done. He wants to empower you to do the work he's calling you to do. When you're running around the track, you're witnessing to something. You're testifying to something. And if you are a Christian, know this. You are called to the witness stand. To be a Christian is to be called to the witness stand. You are called to be a witness. First Peter 3.15, I have it up on a slide for you. It says it this way. 
Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You must be prepared to testify. And he says how to do that. He says, honor Christ the Lord as holy in your heart. The first thing you do if you want to testify, if you want to witness on Jesus' behalf, is to give him the seat of honor in your own heart. There's a seat in your heart that is a seat of honor where you put the highest, most important thing. And everybody at the room knows who's the head of the table. Is Jesus that head of your table? Are you honoring him in your own heart? Before you go out and share him with others, are you honoring him yourself? Are you witnessing to yourself to, that he is the most important thing to you? And then in order to testify, you need to be able to do it whenever you're asked. Look, look Peter almost just assumes that you're living in such a way that people are like, you're weird. What's your deal? <laughs> Why, he just, he even like, he was, it, it assumes, it presupposes, be prepared to make a defense. Why are you having to defend yourself? Because people are seeing what you're doing, and they're like, what's unusual about this person? Why did they not cheat on their taxes? Why did they insist on reporting their trampoline to their insurance? Just like weird stuff. Like, why did they give the change back to the guy at the teller? Because they got too much change. That's weird. Like, just take it. It's free money. They got an extra burger at the drive-thru. Just take it, man. It's weird that you like, live in such an integrous way. Like, what's going on with you? Why do you live like that? It, he, he almost assumes that you're living in such a way for Jesus, that you're honoring him in your heart, that it's evident to people around you. And they're asking you, Sean, what possible explanation do you have for what you're doing right now? I don't understand. Why do you drive the speed limit? Why aren't you speeding? Don't you know you get places faster when you speed? It's just math. <laughs> you don't even have to get it. You can sleep in later and <laughs> just drive faster and break the law and get places. Why don't you just do that? He assumes that you're living in such a way that it's inviting people to ask. But it will still require words, right? He's not just saying just live in such a way. He's saying when they ask, you should know what to tell them. The good news is news. And news is reported by talking. You have to say words to report the news. You imagine tuning into the nightly news and just a bunch of people sitting there like making mime gestures about what happened today. Or they're acting it out. They're like... You're like, uh, like, what is this like? Is this shreds? I don't know. A guy walked his dog? Is that, am I right? No, they tell you stuff on the news. Why? Because words are how you communicate things. The good news is news. Like at, at Connection Group, we have a game called Fishbowl. Maybe you guys have played it. Um, and like, it's always fun because you get to that third round where like the first round is like, it's like catchphrase where you try and get people to say it. The second round is like, is like charades where they're acting it out. It's actually the second round where they're acting things out. And now you know what they should be acting out because you've heard them all the first round. But even then, it sometimes takes a while to guess it, right? Because people are trying to mime things that are complicated. But you, and that's assuming you know what the available answers even are. And it's still hard. How much harder is it for people to just guess by looking at your life that you worship Jesus as the one way to connect to God through the Holy Spirit? That's going to take words. You're going to have to say something at some point. But... You do have to live in such a way as, that, as not to discredit your own witness. You've seen in a courtroom, you know, if somebody has a testimony and they saw something, if they can't dispute the facts of what they're saying, they dispute the character of the person who's saying it. It's like, well, I've seen them live outside of here. They don't live like that. It's true. You do have to live in such a way that lines up with your words. You have to have corroborating evidence to support the fact of what you're actually saying. So the good news with this, even though, is when you witness guys, like, you might feel the pressure, and you're like, ah, I didn't want that. <laughs> like, that's a lot of, so I have to be able to defend all of Christendom and the entire Bible? No, like, you don't have to have all the answers, but you do have to answer for yourself. 
If somebody asks you, why are you a Christian? You should know the answer to that question. Why are you a Christian? Why do you call yourself one? You should know that. You don't have to answer why I think I'm a Christian, but you do have to answer for yourself. And that's good news because it limits the scope of things that you're required to know. But you should be interested in the things of God and you should know them for yourself. So it is by God's power that we're to testify on his behalf whenever we're asked. But it's also added that we're supposed to do it wherever we happen to be. Look at the last part of verse 8. In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Testifying to Jesus begins where you are right now. You have to be where you are because you can't be where you aren't. Like, where are you right now? Testify there. Some of you are worried. You hear that and you're like, well, am I supposed to testify somewhere else? It's like, well, don't just, are you testifying where you are? Let's start there. Where are you? What family are you in? What workplace do you go to? What gym do you go to? What coffee shop do you frequent? Start there. Start where you already are and be a witness there and then work your way out to places where you aren't. Because it doesn't just end with where you are. You see the progression, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, neighborhoods, then to countries, then oceans, the end of the earth. Some people will need to stay put. Some people will need to travel. Some people will need to move and forward their mail. Some people will need to just stay where they are. Like, he assumes that some people will stay where they are. Some people will need to get out and travel. Some people will need to move altogether. And for those of you who want to stay... We have to be willing to go. We have to be willing to send people out, rather. We have to be willing to send. That means that in order for us to stay here and have a church in Columbia, we're going to have to be generous and send our best. And that doesn't mean, yeah, not just send scraps, but send the best. We're going to have to give, and we're gonna have to, it's going to hurt to lose things that we love. But we're gonna, if we're going to do this, and some of us are going to stay, we're going to have to be willing to send things. And we're going to have to have open hands with what God's given us and be willing to send it. But that also means that those of you who are excited about going, you need to respect those who stay. They're sending you. <laughs> the arrow doesn't despise the bow. Like, why are you just sitting there? It's like, well, I did launch you <laughs> 300 yards that way. I, can, I feel like we're partners in this. <laughs> like, if you're a goer, respect those who stay. If you're a stayer, send. Be, be excited about those who are going. We all work together, and we will all fulfill what the Holy Spirit wants us to do and get the word out to everyone. And that will mean for some of you just moving across the city. Not just even moving like to a foreign zip code, but maybe just move across the city to minister to a different community. Maybe it's moving across the state to a different part of the state to minister there. Maybe it's across the border. Maybe it's across the country, like Matt just did recently, or maybe it's across the ocean. But we will have to move to all the places so that all people can know that what Jesus did. And so with all that, Jesus says his final words. And then he exits stage north. Look at verses 9 through 11. We'll finish out. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus says these things and then ascends up to the right hand of his father. And angels show up as the guys are just sitting there looking, just looking. And all of a sudden, two guys show up and tap on the shoulder. I was like, why are you just standing here? Didn't he say go? I'm like, yeah, but did you see that? <laughs> that was pretty awesome. <laughs> like, I'm just kind of like starstruck by it. Like, he just went up and all of a sudden he was gone. Like, so some of the questions, like, why, why are you just staring? Because like, that was awesome. Like, well, why are you standing here? He said go, right? Did we all not hear what he just said? He said go. Same question for us this morning. 
Why are we just standing here? Why are we sitting around? What are we waiting for? Salvation is not a finish line. It's a starter's pistol. He said, go. Go, like, testify. If you're going to stay, then testify where you are. If you're going to go, then get to work on getting over there and testifying where you're supposed to be. Salvation is not the finish line. It's a starter's pistol. And he saved us to get us into the race. We need to run with joy and excitement the way we used to do when we were kids and run like kids of God before him, saying, Father, I'm just running because it's a delight to be on the track, and I'm so happy to be here. And so we do that by fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples, baptizing people, teaching them what Jesus said, and remembering the entire time that Jesus is with us to the end of the age. As long as we run, he is with us. And that's why we celebrate communion in response to hearing God's word. The God who sends us goes with us. The God who commissions us to go goes with us everywhere we go. John 20, verse 21. Last verse I'll leave you with here. Jesus said this. The resurrected Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. How was Jesus sent? He was sent from the comfort of heaven by his Father, commissioned to go reach the world by making disciples. And that's exactly what he did. And he says, the same way I was sent by my father, I am now sending you. Go do what I did. Get uncomfortable. It's going to be weird sometimes. You're going to say stuff and people aren't going to like it. But some people are going to believe it. And they're going to be adopted into our family. And we will call them brother and sister. So go the same way that I left heaven. Leave your comfort zone. The same way that I came and gave my life and poured myself out because I'm already full of everything I need. You go full of everything you already need, having the power that he gives, that he supplies, because you asked, and now because you're connected to him through Jesus and faith in the Holy Spirit, and through that, now go and give yourself. And this is what this table represents. Jesus gave his life for us. His body was broken like the bread for us. His blood was poured out for us. So let us go do that. And as we go, we come to this table to remember where power is. Don't look in. Don't dig deep. Look up. Look up to God where power is and get connected to that. Whatever you do, be connected to that. So as the band plays, you will come up, you will take a piece of the bread, you will dip it into the cup, remembering what he did and why he did it. Because he had to. It was the only way. It was necessary. It was the only way to connect us. But through that, we are guaranteed connection. If you are in him, you are connected to God and you have power. I'm sorry. If you came in here feeling weak this morning, if you're a Christian, you have power available. It's there. Just confess your weakness. The first thing you have to do is say, I'm weak. You're strong. Help me. And it's available to you. If you are not a Christian, if you've never connected to Jesus, don't just flock up to this table because everybody else is doing it. Take a moment and and think about these things. Contemplate them. Think about what that means. Am I connected to this God? Am I connected to this power? Have I actually connected? Or have have I just been throwing my phone near the outlet? Or am I actually connecting to it? Am I receiving from him? Do I look to him for my power? Am I been digging deep? If you've never done that, don't participate in this table. It doesn't make sense for what you're doing. But watch us who do it, and then watch us sing to the God who saved us. Like, I invite you, don't participate. Just watch us who have done that. Watch us sing with joy on our hearts. Look at us take in power and then celebrate the God who empowers us. And if you want to in on that, if you want to know what it looks like to do that or to take the next steps to do that, find me, find Stan. Find Matt, find Chris, find Nick. Go to, the, go to the Edison bulbs. Go to the coffee bar. Go to the person who took you, who you came with. Go to your connection group leader. Whatever you do, though, get connected to that. Heavenly Father, thank you for just the gift of your Holy Spirit, the promise that the Comforter, 
would come and empower us. I, I confess that I often feel weak and not up to the task. And coming to church, looking for hope, and then finding more stuff to do just wears me out. Um, it's like, I don't, I don't want more marching orders, pastor. I just want to I just want energy. I just want something to fill me out. I'm just looking for an outlet, something to, to give me hope. We thank you, God, that in you we find power. We find hope. We find that very thing that we need. But we, we do find that it comes with a natural implication of being set into a race to run. To be saved is to be set on a racetrack. And it is one more thing to do, but it's something that you empower us to do. It's something that is a natural response to being saved. You've been set on a racetrack. The most natural thing in the world would be to run. There's not a lot of other things to do on a racetrack. Help us to run, God. Help us not to dig deep. Help us not to turn to ourselves when we're feeling tired. Help us to turn to you. Help us to remember the thing that got us on the track in the first place was faith in you. Help us not to try and finish the race by our own power. God, you have graciously invited us into your kingdom into your race, into a chance to glorify you and to run, not because we have to, but because we get to, because you've loved us first. Thank you for the example you gave in sending your son to us and then commissioning us and likewise to do the same. Help us to leave our comfort zones by faith in you, to be uncomfortable for you, relying on your power and connecting other people to the same source because connecting them to it does not rob from our power. There's, there's no lack in you. The more people we connect, it doesn't rob from us. You have all power. Enough for me, enough for my neighbor. Help us to share that good news. Be with us this week as we walk in faith in you and run into those opportunities to testify on your behalf. In your name we pray.